Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Greetings, and welcome to the Waste Connections Second Quarter 2021 Earnings Conference Call. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press the 1 followed by the 4 on your telephone. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star 0. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded today, Thursday, August 5th, 2021. I would now like to turn the conference over to Worthing Jackman, President and CEO of Waste Connections. Please go ahead. Perfect. Thank you, Operator, and good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to this conference call to discuss our second quarter 2021 results and updated outlook for the full year and to provide a detailed outlook for the third quarter. I'm joined this morning by Marianne Whitney, our CFO. As noted in our earnings release, broad-based strength drove an across-the-board beat in the second quarter. Revenue and adjusted EBITDA in Q2 increased 17.5% and 23% respectively over the prior year period, primarily as a result of continued improvement in solid waste pricing and volume growth and strength in recovered commodity values. These trends drove year-to-date adjusted EBITDA margin expansion of 110 basis points and adjusted free cash flow of over $585 million, up 18.5% year-over-year. And given expected continuing momentum and margin expansion from these trends, position us to raise our full-year outlook for revenue, adjusted EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA margin, and adjusted free cash flow. 2021 also has the potential to be another outsized year of acquisition activity. Year-to-date, we have signed or closed 14 acquisitions with total annualized revenue of approximately $115 million, including $75 million of franchise operations in California, Nevada, and Oregon expected to close later this year. We continue to see record amounts of seller interest driving elevated acquisition dialogue and, as communicated throughout the year, expect closings related to most of this activity to be more weighted to the second half of the year, which which would provide further upside to our increased outlook for the year and strong rollover growth into 2022. Before we get too much more into detail, let me turn the call over to Mary Ann for our forward-looking disclaimer and other housekeeping items. Thank you, Worthing, and good morning. The discussion during today's call includes forward-looking statements made pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the U.S. Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995, including forward-looking information within the meaning of applicable Canadian securities laws. Actual results could differ materially from those made in such forward-looking statements due to various risks and uncertainties. Factors that could cause actual results to differ are discussed both in the cautionary statement included in our August 4th earnings release and in greater detail in Waste Connections filings with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the Securities Commissions or similar regulatory authorities in Canada. You should not place undue reliance on forward-looking statements as there may be additional risks of which we are not presently aware or that we currently believe are immaterial, which could have an adverse impact on our business. We make no commitment to revise or update any forward-looking statements in order to reflect events or circumstances that may change after today's date. On the call, we will discuss non-GAAP measures such as adjusted EBITDA, adjusted net income attributable to waste connections on both a dollar basis and per diluted share, and adjusted free cash flow. Please refer to our earnings releases for a reconciliation of such non-GAAP measures to the most comparable GAAP measures. Management uses certain non-GAAP measures to evaluate and monitor the ongoing financial performance of our operations. Other companies may calculate these non-GAAP measures differently. I will now turn the call back over to Worthing. Thank you, Marianne. In the second quarter, solid waste price plus volume growth of 11.4% exceeded our expectations by almost 150 basis points, primarily as a result of higher than expected volumes 
as the recovery trends that began in Q1 continue throughout the quarter, with landfill tons and roll-off pulls returning to levels about in line with or above pre-pandemic levels. Total price of 4.9%, up 70 basis points sequentially, was above our outlook on higher core pricing of 4.7%, once again reflecting the strength of pricing retention we noted in Q1, plus about 20 basis points in fuel and material surcharges. Our Q2 pricing ranged from 2.6% in our mostly exclusive Western region to a range of about 45 to 7% in our more competitive regions. Looking ahead, we are positioned for higher sequential pricing growth during the second half of the year as a result of incremental price increases we have already put in place to offset certain cost pressures. Reported volume growth of 6.5% in Q2 reflected sequential improvement of approximately 1,000 basis points from Q1 and was led by those regions where markets were hardest hit during the pandemic, including the Northeast U.S. and Canada. All regions showed sequential improvement from Q1 and all reported positive volumes in Q2. Volumes ranged from about 4% in our central region, where comparisons to the prior year were tougher as many markets were relatively less impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, to almost 10.5% in Canada, one of our most impacted regions, where the volume recovery had been remarkably strong, arguably outpacing the reopening activity, particularly when considering the many restrictions in Canada extended through Q2 this year. Also noteworthy is our Western region, where volumes led our other regions going into the pandemic and continue to be the strongest in the U.S. at about 8.5% in Q2. Looking at year-over-year results in the second quarter on a same-store basis, all lines of business increased by double digits. Commercial collection revenue was up 16% year-over-year. Roll-off pulls increased by over 11% year-over-year, led by Canada, up almost 20% and back to above pre-COVID-19 levels. In the U.S., pulls were up about 10%, and all regions showed year-over-year improvement, most notably in our more impacted markets, including in the Northeast. Landfill tons were up 17% year-over-year on MSW tons up 11%, C&D tons up 20%, and special waste tons up 33%. As a result, landfill tons have returned to above pre-pandemic levels in all of our regions except the Eastern region, which was slightly below prior levels, as a result of the delayed reopening activity in markets in the Northeast. Looking more closely at results, as noted, all waste types were up double-digit percentages year-over-year. However, the outsized amount of special waste activity was particularly noteworthy, as Q2 activity propelled tons back to 13% above pre-pandemic levels, with all regions up year-over-year, perhaps due to a little pull-forward from Q3. Looking at Q2 revenues from recovery commodities, that is recycled commodities, landfill gas, and renewable energy credits or RENs, excluding acquisitions, collectively they were up about 95% year over year, resulting in a combined margin tailwind of about 130 basis points, 90 basis points of which was from recycling and 40 basis points from landfill gas and RENs. Recycling revenue increases were driven by both higher commodity values including old corrugated containers, or OCC, up 25%, and plastics and metals, both up over 100%. Higher volumes also contributed year over year, again, reflecting the pandemic impact. Prices for OCC averaged about $135 per ton in Q2, and our RIN pricing averaged about $2.72. And finally, on to EMP waste activity, we reported 31.2 million of EMP waste revenue in the second quarter, up 26% sequentially from Q1, reflecting increased activity across multiple basins. Looking at acquisition activity, as, as noted earlier, we've already signed or closed 14 acquisitions with annualized revenue of approximately 115 million, approaching what we would consider an average amount of activity for the full year. These transactions include multiple West Coast franchise markets which are core to our strategy and provide unique opportunities to expand our exclusive contract portfolio. Moreover, our pipeline still reflects record levels of seller interest, driving the potential for outsized activity in 2021, primarily given tax-related considerations. 
That said, we continue to be selective and disciplined in our approach to acquisitions as we recognize the importance of value creation for our shareholders, as well as market selection and asset positioning. Now I'd like to pass the call to Marianne to review more in depth the financial highlights of the second quarter and our increased outlook for the year and to provide a detailed outlook for Q3. I will then wrap up before heading into Q&A. Thank you, Worthing. In the second quarter, revenue was 1.534 billion, about 44 million above our outlook, due primarily to higher than expected solid waste growth and recovered commodity values. Revenue on a reported basis was up 228 million or 17.5% year over year, including acquisitions completed since the year ago period, which contributed about 47.6 million of revenue in the quarter or about 44.1 million net of divestitures. Adjusted EBITDA for Q2 as reconciled in our earnings release was 484.9 million, about $17 million and 20 basis points above our outlook at 31.6% of revenue, up 140 basis points year over year. Commodity-driven impacts account for about 100 basis points of margin expansion, net of a 30 basis point impact from higher fuel, on diesel rates up almost 20% year over year. X-Fuel solid waste collection transfer, collection transfer and disposal margins expanded by 50 basis points as we more than offset a 60 basis points increase in incentive compensation costs, 50 basis points from higher medical, and 50 basis points from increased discretionary expenses. And finally, acquisitions completed since the year ago period accounted for about 10 basis points of margin dilution. Regarding discretionary expenses, we've begun the process of returning to a more normalized operating environment, including in-person training, meetings, and other activities we consider integral to sustaining our culture and expanding our bench strength ahead of future growth. Given the challenging labor environment, we've also proactively implemented implemented supplemental wage adjustments in many markets as we anticipate or combat labor constraints. These purposeful wage and discretionary cost additions, along with higher incentive, medical, and other costs resulting from more typical activity levels, largely replaced last year's COVID-19-related frontline support costs, the majority of which did not repeat this year. As noted earlier, we've already implemented incremental price increases to address these higher costs, resulting in full year 2021 price of approximately 5%, up from 4% in our original outlook. We delivered adjusted free cash flow up 18.5% year over year through Q2 at 585 million or 20% of revenue, putting us on track to achieve our revised adjusted free cash flow outlook of approximately $1 billion. I will now review our outlook for the third quarter 2021 and our updated outlook for the full year. Before I do, we'd like to remind everyone once again that actual results may vary significantly based on risks and uncertainties outlined in our safe harbor statement and filings we've made with the SEC and the Securities Commissions or similar regulatory authorities in Canada. We encourage investors to review these factors carefully. Our outlook assumes no significant change in underlying economic trends, including as a result of or related to impacts from the COVID-19 pandemic or the Delta variant of the coronavirus. It also excludes any impact from additional acquisitions that may close during the remainder of the year and expensing of transaction-related items during the period. Looking first at Q3, revenue in Q3 is estimated to be approximately $1.56 billion. We expect solid waste price plus volume growth of about 7% in Q3, with pricing of about 5%. Recovered commodity values and E&P waste revenue are expected to remain in line with current levels, with RINs generally in line with Q2 levels and OCC trending slightly higher. Adjusted EBITDA in Q3 is estimated to be approximately $495 million, or 31.7% of revenue, up 60 basis points year over year and up sequentially from Q2. Depreciation and amortization expense for the third quarter is estimated to be about 13.3% of revenue, including amortization of intangibles of about 33.8 million or rounded 10 cents per diluted share net of taxes. Interest expense, net of interest income is estimated at approximately $40 million, 
And finally, our effective tax rate in Q3 is estimated to be about 21.5%, subject to some variability. Turning now to our updated outlook for the full year as provided and reconciled in our earnings release. Revenue for 2021 is now estimated to be approximately 5.975 billion or 175 million above our initial outlook, with the primary drivers being an additional 150 basis points of solid waste price plus volume growth and higher recovered commodity values as compared to our initial outlook plus $25 million from acquisitions completed year to date. Adjusted EBITDA for the full year is now estimated to be approximately 1.875 billion or about 31.4% of revenue and up about 75 million over our initial outlook. Moreover, full year adjusted EBITDA margin guidance is 40 basis points above our initial outlook, up 90 basis points year over year. At 31.4%, our adjusted EBITDA margin outlook reflects continued year-over-year -year margin expansion in the second half of 2021, in spite of wage and inflationary pressures and tougher year-over-year -year comparisons. Adjusted free cash flow in 2021 is now expected to be approximately 1 billion, or over 53% of EBITDA, and up 50 million from our initial outlook, despite CapEx up 50 million from our original outlook. Last week, we closed our new $2.5 billion credit facility, which increased borrowing capacity by almost $300 million, reduced borrowing spreads, and enhanced flexibility for continued growth. Our balance sheet strength, together with its increased capacity, positions us for potential above average acquisition activity and an increasing return of capital to shareholders. We have already returned over $400 million to shareholders in 2021 through share repurchases and dividends, and we are in the process of renewing our normal course issuer bid, authorizing the repurchase of up to 5% of our outstanding shares per annum. We will continue to approach share repurchases opportunistically and anticipate announcing another double-digit percentage per share increase in our cash dividend in October. And now let me turn the call back over to Worthing for some final remarks before Q&A. Thank you, Marianne. Again, broad-based strength continues to drive results ahead of expectations as we benefit from reopening activity in a supportive macro environment, including tailwinds from recovered commodity values. We've once again demonstrated the importance of being selective about markets and intentional about driving results. Quality of revenue and comparative price retention across markets matter. We're extremely pleased to be in a position to raise our outlook for the full year. We're set up for continuing margin expansion through the second half of 2021 as proactive, unbudgeted price increases offset wage and inflationary pressures. We are on track for adjusted free cash flow of approximately $1 billion and adjusted EBITDA margins back above pre-COVID-19 levels. Finally, we expect to announce another double-digit percentage increase in our regularly quarterly cash dividend in October and remain well positioned for potential significant increase in acquisition outlays to drive further growth in 2021 and beyond. We appreciate your time today. I will now turn this call over to the operator to open up lines for your questions. Operator. Thank you. If you would like to register a question, please press the one followed by the four on your telephone. You will hear a three-tone prompt to acknowledge your request. If your question has been answered and you would like to withdraw your registration, please press the one followed by the three. Our first question is from the line of Walter Spracklin with RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, good morning, everyone. Hey, good morning, Walter. So, 
Yeah, so, so I'd like to uh, uh, zero in on your uh, M&A pipeline, and and my question is, what is the, what what is the main driver of your pace of acquisitions? Uh, obviously, it's not financial leverage, but is it is it just the availability of sellers? Is it is it valuations on 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 offer prices, or or is it your own kind of acquisition processing and integration capacity? And the the reason I'm asking is that the, the sector is clearly consolidating rapidly here and, and, and good companies are being gobbled up by you and your competitors. And I'm just curious as to whether now is the time to kind of stretch your acquisition activity even more than you've already done uh, and perhaps add leverage or, 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 or a turn of leverage there to, to achieve a more rapid pace uh, given the, you know, g- given how fast and how, how rapidly good companies are being, uh, being acquired in your sector right now. And Walter, that's a great question. The, Look, we've always said that sellers determine the timing uh, when good businesses are sold, right? These are family-driven issues, tax-driven issues, lineage transition issues, et cetera. Um, And we've always wanted to maintain the flexibility to be there to write the checks when they make the decision to sell. And that's that's why you've seen us, you know, keep a lot of dry powder on our balance sheet. I mean, at this not that we'll spend all this, but, you know, we could theoretically write a $3 billion check right now and still stay, you know, around three times leverage. And I say that because this year you are seeing a lot of folks come to the table. Um, in the U.S., a lot of that is driven by uh, potential tax changes, increases in capital gains rates. You know, if, if when the administration says something like, well, we might go to 40 percent of cap gains, and you recognize in a state like California, that would mean cap gains would be taxed at over 57%, um, you know, these are three, four generation old companies that all of a sudden have to give most of the proceeds to the government after all their hundred years of work. And so it's, um, you know, these are real considerations for people uh, in the U.S. Um, and so we've seen a lot of tax driven conversations. Uh, we have seen some lineage uh, transition uh, driven conversations. We've got people who are some sellers who are just exhausted having gone through a pandemic, uh, haven't gone through the struggles around labor, um, uh, increased investment requirements in the business to keep up with regulations and changes looking ahead. Uh, the businesses are back above pre-pandemic levels, and so they know it's a good time to come to the market. So there's a variety of, of things that drive sellers, but again, in our model, sellers determine when, you know, when the timing's right for them. Okay, I appreciate that color, uh, Worthing. My, my follow-up question, is on landfill gas energy opportunities. A lot of your competitors now are starting to talk about uh, that opportunity. Could you give us a little bit of a flavor for how many facilities do you see as as poised to or potentially uh, uh, participating in that trend? And even if you have some numbers around that in terms of revenue and cash flow opportunity, uh, uh, that'd be helpful as well. Sure, and, and we've been consistent about this conversation. Obviously, we've we've said a lot more about it in our sustainability report that we published a year ago. Um, and you know, frankly, we're, we're we're pivoting from a position of knowledge because we've got you know the largest plant right now in, in North America um, with, with regards to this. And look, we've said all along that we've got three to five opportunities um, for you know, high BTU plants within our current network. We've been working on for for many years. Um, two are, are further along in the process than others. Um, you know, we expect to, to commence construction uh, next year on, on two plants that we've already approved. Understand that lead time for some of these plants, once you say go, can still be at least 18 months for some critical components. Again, you think about the, the, some of the delays on the manufacturing side, it affects, you know, construction and timetables for, uh, for these plants as well. And so, you know, we've been consistent to say, you know, at the earliest, we would expect a contribution uh, from these to, to be in, to start in 2023 and hit their full stride sometime, you know, second half of that year and into 24. Um, the numbers around it are simple. I mean, we're between the, the couple of plants that we're looking at right now and a couple of uh, recycling um, uh, plants as well that we're looking to build, you know, that kind of investment, you know, could be anywhere between 100 to 125 million collectively. Um, and you look at that, and the means of revenue opportunity at that is probably close to 75 or 80 percent of that. Um, and EBITDA flow through is is probably close to 70 percent of that revenue. And so, 
as you can see in, in, in today's environment, especially the payback can be a lot quicker than that. Uh, when you see if EBITDA can be higher than that, but um, you know, we've always said payback can be in that, you know, three year plus or minus range with regards to these kind of investments. Again, today it's, it's quicker than that. Appreciate the time more than and uh, congrats on a good quarter. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question is from the line of Hamza Masari with Jeffries. Please proceed with your question. Hey, good good morning. Thank you. Um, uh, I guess my my first question is maybe you could help talk about just the interplay between pricing and inflation, and and what we mean by that is, you know, how how much of the price increase is sort of playing catch up to inflation versus sort of flowing to the bottom line. Maybe maybe help us think about that, and as you answer that you know, maybe you can layer in your incremental margin assumption as, as sort of demand improves further. Sure, uh, and good morning, Hamza. Thanks for the question. So first of all, with respect to pricing, uh, as, as we described, we've already implemented price increases that are leading to the higher reported pricing in the back half of the year, uh, which is, of course, an anomaly, right? We would typically report our highest price earlier in the year. And just on a reported basis, it would step down over the course of the year, just mathematically. So that tells you we already had strong pricing retention in Q2, and the pricing is increasing in Q3 and Q4. And, you know, as we further described, that is offsetting, is covering the incremental wage pressure. You know, in some cases where we did market adjustments proactively, in other cases where we've seen those labor constraints. And so we, you know, we feel we have that covered with these incremental price increases. And so that's one aspect of it. I, I, I'd say, you know, more broadly, when we think about the incrementals, you know, we've talked about the 40% plus as volumes return. You know, I think that's the same way to think about it. Of course, being mindful of the fact that what's come back most quickly are landfill tons, which would have higher incrementals than what's really left. If we think about, you know, what pieces aren't back in, we, we sat on the call that landfill tons and roll-up holes are really back to pre-pandemic levels. So that tells you that that last point, point and a half percent of volume, which isn't in our numbers yet, is more commercial and so could have slightly lower incrementals, but still the right way to think about it. Great, very, very helpful. And just, just on M&A, do you, do you? Uh, I, I know you sort of outlined what you have in the second half. Maybe just if you could uh, update us on whether you think the pipeline can come in a lot higher than that. And, 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 and just as it relates to M&A, how, how quickly do, does M&A become accretive for you? And is it, is it faster now because you have higher scale than it was, you know, historically for you? Yeah, well, first, the second um, uh, point, um, I mean, M&A comes in, you know, accretive to, to free cash flow day one. Um, now, margin profile is different because if we're to the extent, as you know, Hamza, if we're already running 31 plus percent in EBITDA margins and we're buying a collection operation, you know, good collection operation might be in the mid to high 20s uh, with regards to margin. And we'll approve that a little bit. But what gets us to the 31% or higher is our integrated network of landfills and some other higher margin things that we do. And so, you know, the, it's always pulls a little bit, tugs a little bit on margins. You saw in this quarter acquisitions were about 10 basis points uh, diluted for the overall. But um, because the, the, the base business is getting so much bigger, the dilutive impact on acquisitions, if they're collection only, just is getting lesser and lesser. Um, but obviously, on a free cash flow basis, um, it's a creative uh, as it comes in. With regards to you know the environment, look as you as we think of the setup for for acquisitions, you know if we signed or closed 115 million of uh, revenue so far, that already provides about one and a half percent rollover growth into next year. If we simply double that in the balance of the year, we're going into next year with three percent uh, from acquisitions. Obviously, if we do more, that that increases that three percent. But that 3% plus right now running at around 7% price plus volume growth, you know, puts double digit revenue growth going into next year, um, you know, not out of the question. And then obviously more things that we get done next year provide further growth from that. And so M&A ac activity this year will increase. <laughs> it will, we, we will do more than the 115. Um, but with double digit uh, revenue growth already in hand as we kind of enter the year at a minimum, 
that plus margin expansion drives great flow through, as you know, to, to earnings growth and more importantly, free cash flow per share growth. That's uh, very helpful. Just last question. I'll turn it over. On on your Q3 volume estimate of 2%, uh, just frame for us how conservative that is. Are you assuming, you know, education, sports, uh, you know, all comes back? Um, I don't know how much exposure you have there. And is the special waste a good indicator of, of what's to come on, on volumes? Thank you. Sure. So with respect to, to Q3, where we, we guided 7% price plus volume and said about 5 is price and, and therefore 2 is volume, uh, we haven't assumed continued reopening activity, Hamza. So basically, uh, you know, it says at a point in time, based on kind of where we were in Q2, how do we think about the rest of the year? And so to the extent there's any improvement, you know, particularly in those most impacted markets, as we described, you know, the Northeast, for instance, which hadn't come back yet or to a much lesser degree, that would be incremental. That would be upside to what we've communicated. And to that point, similarly, on recycled commodities, ENP activity, RIMS, uh, to the extent there's continued improvement in any of those, that would also be upside to what we've guided. And to your question you so regarding much. special waste, just to close on that, you know, the, the, the observation there was just how strong it was in Q2 and a reminder how lumpy special waste can be. And, you know, the, the observation is, you, know, you don't know that that level, that pace would continue. It might have been some pull forward from Q3, and so we'll watch during the quarter to see where that plays out. Got it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question is from the line of Jeff Goldstein with Morgan Stanley. Please proceed with your question. Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my questions. I just want to follow up a little. I just want to follow up a little bit on that last question around volumes, and just try to parse that out a little bit more. Just looking at the quarter, you know, your six and a half percent increase, you're still about 300 basis points below 2Q19 levels. And I know you've kind of mentioned a lot of positives around things like C&D and special waste, but maybe you could just add a little bit more about what you think is lagging and really what is the source of upside if we are going to reach pre-pandemic levels by the end of the year, and if you think that's feasible. Sure. And and to frame it, the, the way we think about it, when we finished uh, 2020, we said at that point, there's really about 3% that, that's not back in these numbers, three, negative 3% volume. And what we've observed already in the first half of the year, that the volume recovery had outpaced our expectations by about 100 basis points, a little more than that. So from, from our purview, there's a, you know, probably a point and a half in volume, which isn't back in the numbers yet as compared to pre-pandemic levels. And to the observation about the fact that tons are essentially back, pulls are essentially back, it tells you that it's really the commercial piece, which is lagging, which, of course, would take longer to get back. You know, those tons and pulls are good real-time indicators of activity. And so, you know, to your question, that's where we see the remaining piece. And we certainly see that if we look at that 1.5%, there's a large portion of it which is concentrated in the northeast of the U.S., particularly New York City and in Canada, both of which were more impacted uh, by the pandemic and slower to reopen. And so we'll look forward to seeing that. And again, it's, it's not in what, the way we've guided the rest of the year. Okay, understood. That was all very helpful. And then w with the recycling industry being so strong right now, I'm curious if you're doing anything different to take advantage of it, meaning are there any investments to call out or any other initiatives you're taking to really capitalize on the high commodity prices right now and, and just the growing appetite for recycling in general, really? Well, I think the overall approach um, probably is not too dissimilar from the way other folks uh, look at this, which is, you know, we've, we've shifted over time to more of a um, domestic um, uh, customer with regards to, to moving the commodities. Um, you know, we've looked at putting uh, contracts in place to try to consolidate our, our sales effort um, to make sure we have the offtake there. Um, we've invested uh, in more optical sorting and robotics within the facility to, to improve the quality of the material uh, that's being sent to those customers. 
which drives higher price points per ton as well. Um, obviously, to the extent we can continue to take labor out of that, it reduces our reliance and dependence on, on headcount uh, going forward. And we've taken that all into account as we've designed these two new facilities we're building to, to try to do what I think us and others recall the, the recycling facility of the future, which you know puts all that together um, and you know puts us in a position to, again, take labor out, um, improve the quality of the material, um, improve um, the overall revenue profile of the facility. And as you know, this industry has already, you know, de-risked uh, that business somewhat by moving to a tip fee structure for third parties that come in the facilities to make sure we're, we're more than covering our OPEX and CAPEX and returns um, from the tip fees um, and then letting some of the commodity values be gravy on top of that. And so I think the whole industry is, has migrated over the past, you know, three or four years uh, into this opportunity. Obviously, the, the 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 increased commodity values and the strong economy backdrop driving some of that has helped make that look even better. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you. Our next question is from the line of Jerry Revich with Goldman Sachs. Please proceed with your question. Uh, yes, hi. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Hi, Jerry. Uh, Worthing, uh, so last quarter we spoke about, uh, you know, four to five potential, you know, land, landfill uh, gas pipeline development uh, opportunities. And, you know, earlier on the call you, you, you mentioned that um, the, what the economics look like uh, for, for those types of investments. I'm wondering if you were to say, okay, today rent prices are sustainable, um, is there a next layer of projects that you folks would, would consider if you got confidence in RIN3 prices staying around current levels? You know, what could that next wave of opportunities look like? Is it a handful of plants? Is it more than that? Can, can you just help us understand what the pipeline looks like be, behind these top four or five plants that you're looking at in this wave? Sure. Well, just, you know, our confidence isn't just because RIN prices are where they are right now. I mean, our, we look at these uh, over a long period of time and assume that prices can fall and understand that if it's a two or three year payback and if it gets cut in half and that could stretch to a four or six year payback, that's still a very attractive incremental investment. Remember, we have so much already pre-existing investment in, those, in the landfills that it just it sounds so attractive. But remember, there's a lot of other capital that's been invested that people aren't accounting for when look at this incremental investment just for the IBTU plant. Look, understand while we talk about, quote, the three to five or so and the timetables on that stuff and what we're doing, the fact that we've got RFPs out for construction, that we've, that we've you know, put deposits down for equipment and stuff, we're always looking at the portfolio, right? I mean, there's there are existing contracts in place where we just have gas offtake um, based on the older model of of project developers coming in and putting, you know, electric plants uh, in, at the facility. Um, as those contracts are, are winding down, that gives us opportunities to renegotiate those contracts. As more of our landfills mature, obviously that's increased in the gas production and it brings sites over time that don't have enough production now into the fold as you look ahead five or seven years. And so the portfolio will continue to expand. And obviously we've, we kind of laid that out in our ESG report. But uh, the near-term actionables, we think about, you know, the next two to three years or what we're just talking about right now. Okay, terrific. And, and then, you know, on the uh, pricing conversation, nice to see the pricing outlook Im improving. So, um, you know, given the comps uh, uh, are easier in the back half of the year, uh, I'm wondering if you just help us understand, you know, how much are you folks uh, planning to raise pricing uh, in the back half of the year versus the first half? of this year compared to uh, normal seasonality. Yeah, well, as Marianne pointed out, I mean, we've already put in the supplemental price increases uh, during the second quarter, which have all hit the bills. And so the, the actions that, were, that need to be taken for the second half have already been taken. And so we know those numbers. And as we guided, overall reported price will be about 5%, meaning probably coming a little higher than that as you look at Q3 and in the Q4. But also importantly is, it gives us a higher entry point rollover into next year. Um, and so look, this pricing environment uh, will sustain itself. Um, if inflation abates and some of the cost pressures uh, that we see in the system or on CapEx abate, 
then, you know, maybe pricing doesn't need to stay at five, but in this environment, you know, as you know, we, we, we look to, to cover our costs and then some, and it's not just P&L. Uh, you got you to gotta recall that you're seeing escalations, especially related to steel, steel surcharges on fleet containers. You're seeing inflationary pressures um, on the manufacturing side as well, on the construction side of landfills. Plastics are up, so liner costs are up. I mean, it's it's everywhere in the system. And so, you know, we feel right now that 5% is the appropriate amount of pricing uh, needed to, to cover it. Got it. I appreciate the discussion. Thanks. Hmm? Thank you. Our next question is from the line of Michael Hoffman with Stiefel. Please proceed with your question. Hi, good morning, Worthing Marianne. Thank you for taking the queue. Um, Mary, I, I want to tease out, if I can, just a little bit on the one and a half that's left in commercial. Could you frame for us your New York City-specific business, how it looks on a, say, compared to 19? What's, what, what's left to come back there? Because that's a big driver of this, I believe. Sure. As I said, if I, if I look at that remaining piece, you know, about half of it I could put in, in the buckets of the Northeast and, and uh, Canada. And within that, there's as much as 30 million in New York City still to come back. As you know, Michael, with most of the return to office folks looking at post-Labor Day, um, that's why, to Marianne's point earlier, we don't assume any sort of recovery of that and let that be upside. And my assumption is that could be more of a Q4 uh, event than, than Q3. Yeah, because uh, like our shop is talking about back to office September 7th, so that's right. the quarter's over. And we'll see what the Delta variant does to those expectations, and so that's why right. we let that be upside. Right, and and just to emphasize that, price is baked at this point. Volume could have an upside depending on what happens with what you just referred to. But, right. That's the right way to okay. think about it, yes. Um, on the M&A piece, to your comment about when more gets closed, is it mostly tuck-ins or do you have some new market opportunities like you did in, say, Rhode Island and Tucson or Southern Virginia a couple years ago, and then that creates an incremental compounder going forward as you consolidate them? Yeah, as you know, um, you know, for us to be doing a typical year, that means we're doing, you know, two to four new market entries of between 20 and 40 million in, re of re in revenue, and we're doing 15 or 16 or so tuck-ins. Um, again, the compounders that you talk about within our network. So for for us to um, bat above the average, it means you're right. We are looking at um, many new markets, um, which then provide additional platforms to to continue the, the strategy. Okay. So that adds even a greater sort of lengthening of the compounding on the M&A is, is the point of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then um, how do you frame your wage inflation versus your coming into the year and where we are? And then how do you think about that trend into 22? Sure. I mean, look, we just like we saw um, kind of the, the last what I would call labor pinch um, in kind of late 18, early 19, we saw wage escalations average, you know, upwards of 5 to 5.2% um, in certain periods. But back then, um, while we had expectations, you know, going into the year at, you know, 3 to 3.5% 3 for wage escalations, um, you know, I'm not surprised that as we got into Q2, we we, we find ourselves running, you know, five, five and a half percent because we made the decision in recognition of everything that the field has gone through uh, over the past 15 months or so. And in light of the current environment to be proactive and get in front of wage escalations. So we put a couple hundred more basis points into the system uh, during Q2. Um, and I think our folks deserve it. Um, and so, you know, knowing that, um, uh, you know, as we always do, um, we we look at our P&L and, and make sure we'll, we want to recover it. Um, look, 5% price increases, probably half or, or, or less of what you're hearing from consumer product companies and, uh, and other customer-facing industries that, you know, are, 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 are having bad cost inflation that, that they're trying to recover. The good news is this industry is set up to recover it. Um, and so, you know, when, when our folks deserve it, uh, we need to go out and recover it. Um, I would think that wage in, uh, inflation 
may abate next year if you if you think you play through the the uh, the pandemic and the impact uh, of that and folks kind of coming back into the work environment. But um, you know, I've always questioned Jay Paul. I'm used to the word transitory, so I'd hate to tie the word transitory to wage inflation too. So we'll see what happens next year, and obviously we'll we'll be responsive and, and cover whatever's needed. Okay, and then historically on your landfill gas side, you have partnered. Am, am I hearing sort of implicitly you're not on these three to five that you'll, you're going to do them all yourself, or is there still a partnering? And and tied to that, is there a way to try and hedge some of the exposure on the RIN so uh, you, you, we take some of the volatility out, but you enjoy the returns economics still? Yeah, look, we're open-minded to partnering. I mean, we've, uh, you know, and remember, in a lot of these instances, it's not just the plant you're looking at. It's also the marketing agreement with regards to, 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 to monetizing the gas. It could be a pipeline involved with it as well. And so there are various parties that, that are around the table when you're developing um, these sorts of projects. And we evaluate all alternatives, um, you know, having one or two of those partner with us or, or us taking it all on. And so we don't have any restrictions or, or access to capital um, limitations that don't allow us to do it all. But, um, you know, we want to be mindful looking long-term of how do you tie, how do you tie everyone's accountability to, to the success of the project together? Um, and yes, you know, you're right. We can, we can hedge and de-risk um, uh, uh, these sorts of revenue streams as we look ahead. And just like right now, we've got a portion of our RINs hedged. Um, uh, we, we may look at the same thing as with regards to these plants as well. Okay. And then on the incremental $50 million in capital spending, what's going to be the focus of that spend? Yeah, you've seen us um, really opportunistically and fortunately, I think, um, you know, have a big increase in the number of uh, units fleet that we've been able to acquire this year. Uh, we've also been able to uh, buy some, some parcels of land around certain locations to increase um, you know, our footprint for, for the long haul. But, um, you know, we've taken CapEx up um, where others, you know, have talked about, you know, well, if they can't spend it, we'll spend it. Um, some of this will give us a nice pre-positioning of, of 22 and a pull forward of 22 capital in this year. And so as we look ahead, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't put pressure year over year on CapEx outlays next year because of all what we're doing this year. Got it. And last two for me are, where are the two new MRFs going, um, and what's the 10% swing in recycling commodity book equal today? Well, the two new MRFs are going in the U.S., <laughs> if that was your question. Um, and, uh, I mean, obviously, we've, we've purchased recently another recycling facility um, in Montreal what, last year, and so we've expanded our footprint Canada, too. But the Greenfield ones are, are in the U.S., and Mary answered the 10% question. And the 10% around 125, uh, on 125 million, that would suggest about 12, 12 million would be a 10% swing in commodity value. Okay. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. Our next question is from the line of Sean Eastman with KeyBank. Please proceed with your question. Hi, guys. Nice quarter. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, a, a lot of companies are, are talking about sort of having to turn down growth opportunities because of labor availability. Where where are you guys at there? I mean, can you stay on the offensive on growth, or you know, how would you characterize that? Well, I don't look. I don't think you 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 necessarily will notice the impact in the numbers. But without a doubt, um, you know, there, there are markets where, where we are short drivers. I mean, that's being short labor is, is, I think, a statement that most industries are talking about right now. And so with regards to some incremental roll-off activity that, that could have gotten done in the period versus that might slip into another period, absolutely there's, there's a little bit of that going on. But, you know, all in all, you, don't, you won't really see it in the numbers because it is such a, such a small amount. Okay, fair enough. And uh, you mentioned, you know, part of the 115 million in deals that got, you know, that are signed or or closed um, represent West Coast franchise acquisitions. 
Could you just remind us what the significance of that is? And as we look at the near-term pipeline, is a big part of that also West Coast franchises? Yeah, the remaining pipeline is is really coast to coast. Um, yep. So the West Coast, we, we still have uh, opportunities on the West Coast, um, but it's not particularly concentrated on the West Coast, which is what I'm trying to say. Um, mm-hmm. the, I think the unique thing about the West Coast to recall is the need for local consents. Um, these franchises require you know, innovation actions by local municipalities. That adds incremental time to the process. Um, so while we may have already gotten through HSR, um, you know, we're still running the traps on getting those consents. And that can add, in some cases, two to four months to the timeline to, to get the, you know, things across the finish line. So that's the one thing that is unique about the West Coast and the need to, to, to move more quickly and to start that timeline with regards to local consents. Okay, th- thanks a lot, Worthing. I'll turn it over. Thank you. Our next question is from the line of Tyler Brown with Raymond James. Please proceed with your question. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning. Marianne, so thanks so much for breaking down the $175 million, I think, in incremental revenue to the guide. I may have missed it, but big picture, how's the $75 million of incremental EBITDA breakdown between price and volume, commodities, and M&A? Sure. So uh, the, the breakdown would be the incremental solid waste, the way to think about margins, is around 40%. Of course, the $25 million in acquisition contribution would be lower than that, around 25%. And those commodities, that fuel would work out to be about 50% uh, contribution. Okay. Okay. That's very helpful. And then you, you called out incentive comp – or I, I, sorry, I don't recall you calling out incentive comp last quarter. You called it out this quarter. Is it safe to assume that you guys are over-accruing or doing some catch-up accruals? This quarter, and then is incentive comp a sizable margin headwind in the back half? It feels like maybe it is. Yeah, that's the first thing. You got to recall, we didn't call it out last quarter because the comparison was really to a, a lesser pandemic impacted quarter in the prior year. Um, right, I think right. We called it out. Really, uh, frankly, we wouldn't have called it out, but every other company that was reported ahead of us gave us some insight into it. So we wanted to, to be consistent and give you that insight as well. Um, obviously, the weight of that in the in the second half is is not as big. Okay, okay, that's helpful. And then on the five percent pricing, and this is just more for modeling purposes, but how much of that is just fuel? So core, core pricing, uh, it, it's primarily core pricing. You know, in our model, there's a small amount. You saw about 20 basis points of fuel surcharges in Q2. Probably the right way to think about it as we move through the back part of the year. So that tells you that core is approaching four, five on its own. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. And then, yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, but I, And I know it's early, but as you think about next year, obviously we have some pretty good CPI prints. But is it is it safe to assume that it may be pricing a better placeholder is still maybe in the four, the low four type range? And I guess does it even really matter? I mean, the, the key is this is all really a spread spread game, if you want to call it that. I mean, it's it's really looking to be at a positive spread over unit costs, and it's really going to depend on where unit costs come in. Yeah, I think if you look at pricing next year, I mean, you've got two components where I talked about entering the year at a higher entry point given the more recent price increases we've put in place. And so the rollover impact of that, plus you'll have a step up in our exclusive markets of 50 to 100 basis points year over year versus what we're getting this year. Again, that lagging impact of, of price in those marketplaces, that would mean four and a half to 5%, you know, is, is in sight for next year. Um, and again, <laughs> we're pretty well positioned with, uh, again, the entry point being higher and, and exclusive uh, contributing more. Okay, that sounds good. And then on the EMP side, and I know revenue up, was up slightly sequentially, and it sounds like you're baselining the current rate forward, but do you think as some of the EMP's hedges kind of roll off that you're gonna see activity maybe pick up there? 
Are you just hearing any chatter in the market on, on drilling activity? We've had some indications uh, that drillers are coming back or that there'll be a pickup. As you know, we'd always rather wait to see it before we'd, we'd guide to it, but we're encouraged by some of those dynamics we hear out there. Yeah, we think 22 is a better year than 21. Yeah, okay. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Our next question is from the line of Noah Kay with Oppenheimer. Please proceed with your question. Thank you. Uh, maybe I can just pick up on, on Tyler's question, actually, around E&P. Uh, you know, I think just to get into this a little bit, it looks like the live duck count is at a 2013 level, right? I mean, there's been just so many more wells completed than drilled uh, over the past year. Um, yeah, I think in some of the basins that you're in, it's particularly stark. So it, it seems almost logical, like drilling activity has to pick back up. Um, if you're hearing 2022, uh, you know, more likely for that recovery makes sense. But I, I guess, you know, do you see anything structurally getting, keeping this from getting back to like a $50 million a quarter type business? And the second question is, how do you think about incremental margins at this point? Sure. I mean, I think you you help put more meat on the bone with regards to our expectation and why 22 is a better year than 21, because you're right. And obviously there's more waste generated from the drilling activity than just the completion activity. And so that would be a key driver to getting us back to 50 million a quarter. Um, it'd be nice to get back to that. Again, we continue to see sequential improvement as we move through that business. And as you know, the incrementals in this market, in that business, because it's a landfill-based business, are in the 70 to 80% range. And so, you know, as we, uh, as we uh, kind of continue to see the, the, the kind of sequential quarterly increase, you know, we'll click back to, to 50% or better margins at a, at, a, at a lower revenue rate than we needed in, in the prior uh, upside or upturn. And so this business will, will easily cross 50% as, if we are approaching uh, $200 million on an annualized basis. And, and Noah, to that point, we're encouraged by the fact that in, in Q2 already at a, you know, $31 million in revenue, E&P was no longer a drag in the sense that mm -hmm. Uh, the margins there within line uh, or slightly above the corporate average. Okay, excellent. Um, and, and then just, you know, I think the one of the things that's happened over uh, the past year is, is some companies had to kind of slow the role of uh, technology implementation, uh, you know, uh, in, in cab computers and the like, uh, just given everything else going on. Um, but it's obviously strategically important for you, uh, you know, to keep doing so and, and, and helps you, you know, target some of the higher risk markets. So you can just sort of update us on, on where, you know, some of the key technology implementation efforts are. Sure. And, and you're right in saying that, um, you know, we, we, we wish it was faster, but like you hear in many other industries, chip delays uh, have slowed down our ability to, you know, to, to, to roll it out as fast as, as we like. And so, Look, we're we're um, we'll be back on schedule, uh, you know, before the end of the year on that. Um, and again, as we talk about the the, the new generation in cab technologies, uh, there's a lot of benefits that we get from that. Um, and so, you know, I think the we're pleased where we stand on that. We've we've already rolled out our our, our latest and up and greatest updated tablet programs. And so that tablet rollout um, is also continuing as we move through this year. Um, but clearly, you know, the, the, the one delay we saw was, was most pronounced in, in the camera side, just based on some chip delays. Yep. Yep. All right. Thank you very much. And, and uh, nice job. Appreciate it. Thank you. As a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press the 1 followed by the 4 on your telephones. Our next question is from the line of Michael Feniger with Bank of America. Please proceed with your question. Hey, guys. Thanks for uh, taking my, my question. I know the last time you guys were this project with price implementations, you know, we were talking about the late 2018 period when I think unemployment rate was at a record low. Um, recycling was, was challenged. I think when you look back, your margins were actually flattest there. So you're, you know, this is a comparable time period you're saying with wage pressure and labor, yet you know, your margins expand this quarter and you guys are showing confidence in the second half. So what are some of the differences 
you know, when we keep talking about that was the last time we saw this type of labor pressure, yet you're having this type of success on the margin. Is there anything we could kind of glean from that comparing it to that last period? Sure. And, and what particular period are you looking at? Because uh, we'll give you the exact answer. Yeah, I, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was in, in 2018 you guys were talking about this type of cost crunch that you guys were kind of feeling in the second half of 18, yeah, I gotta, think, you late, you know, unemployment rate. Yeah, you got to look uh, first and foremost at recycling, right? I mean, that's when China changed stripes on recycling industry and, you know, we gapped down, what, 75 million of EBITDA. Um, and that was um, not much more revenue because it was all commodity driven, right? And so that was a, a huge impact to margins. And obviously you had the, the downdraft, um, you know, uh, going into a downdraft with regards to EMP as well. And so those are the two high margin impacts. But clearly, if you're looking at 18 and the run rate there, obviously China was the biggest disruptor with regards to commodity values. And again, we're not seeing that right now because China's off, China's off the table. Um, and obviously, the, the demand in the U.S. for recovered commodities is, is insatiable. That makes sense. And kind of to follow up on, I think, Tyler's question, I mean, you guys are guiding the second half margin expansion. So you guys are already you know, getting ahead of the price cost dynamics. And you're exiting this year certainly above you know, 5% or even higher on pricing. We have the CPI reset in the second half of 2022. So... Are we not just setting up for a higher than normal margin expansion next year? Maybe just the puts and takes there of why we wouldn't see higher than normal uh, margins for expansion for 2022. Yeah, because the world doesn't normally move up and to the right with regards to, you know, anything people model, right? Um, yeah. And so we always know that, you know, markets are like a portfolio. Uh, there's always something happening somewhere. There could be uh, politics in some cases. It, it could be a, a cost issue in another case. And so rather than all get ahead of ourselves, um, we like the, the up and to the right without any disruption to be upside. And let's assume that, you know, you've got some issues, some things that hit you all the time with regards to, uh, to diluting all the good that we talk about. And so um, not out of the question to your point, but um, we wouldn't suggest that people own us for pure perfection like that. Fair enough. And just lastly, we're thinking, like anything you're seeing at all in, in July or recently with some of these hot spots that are popping up, I, it, maybe it's too early. I'm just curious if there's anything you, you're, you're hearing um, on the ground from you know, these, yeah. these recent hot spots that are impacting volumes or, or, or anything sure. around there. Thank you. Well, one thing I'd say, because you're right, there have been some hot spots, and I'll get to that, but if we look at July, you know, right now we're cycling at over 500 million a month in revenue in a month like July. And to look at our forecasting for that month and relative to the revenue we did, we came in at around one half of 1% above the revenue we had forecasted. <laughs> um, and so I say that because you look at the, the, the command and control and the insight, how our people know their business. Yeah, there's a lot happening on the ground, but through that, kind of through that, what you see here is, is folks that still know their business and are executing the hell out of their business. And so, you know, we're quite pleased with, with the way um, July was forecasted and the way it came in. Um, you're right on the labor side with the Delta variant. Um, you know, I think in our industry, our industry reflects a lot of the data you see in the U.S. You've seen uh, increases. And again, this is more on the labor side than anything else. You've seen increasing positives. Um, that's been regional in nature in some cases and hotspots in others. That impacts, you know, staffing that, that has a contact tracing quarantine knock, knock off on that. But our folks work through it. I mean, this is an industry of, of, of real people, real families that care for each other and care for their communities that want to get the job done. Um, and it's a testament to, to our folks leaning into it and, and, and honoring the commitments as best as possible. And so it's up, it's upon us in these times and like any year to, to pay our people well and to recognize them for their efforts. Great. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. There are no further questions at this time, Mr. Jackman. I will now turn the conference back over to you.
Well, if there are no further questions, on behalf of our entire management team, we appreciate your listening to and interest in the call today. Marianne and Joe Box are available today to answer any questions that we do not cover that we're allowed to answer under Reg FD, Reg G, and applicable securities laws of Canada. Thank you again. We look forward to speaking with you at upcoming investor conferences, Zooms, or on our next earnings call. Thank you. That does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you all for your participation, and we ask that you disconnect your lines. Thank you, and have a great day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.